The two churches we're going to cover today, the first being Smyrna and the second being Pergamos, which are churches two and three on the chart. Okay, uh, hopefully everybody's got an outline. Okay, we're in the church in Smyrna, and, and uh, if you ever get lost as to where, where we are and what we're talking about, just look at your little chart, your outline chart there, and you'll see what we are. And as we talk about these churches, not as them being literal, because that was 2,000 years ago, okay? That stage of the literal application is over. There was a church in Smyrna that was in Asia Minor, okay? And the words were to them, but they were also, uh, at the same concurrent time, they were prophetic in nature, giving the uh, scope of church history Mm -hmm. until the Lord comes back. So, we have a church here that is actually part of a timeline. If you look at this chart, you can see that Church 1, Ephesus, Church 2, Smyrna, Church 3, Pergamos, start and stop. Right. And then when you get to Thyatira, it picks up after Pergamos, but it does not stop. Something just comes in and it continues on. And this happens until the end of the seventh church. And so at the end, you do have four kinds of uh, Christianity existing on the earth. And in God's eyes, uh, He wants us to have a clear picture of these four. That's why He put these uh, epistles here in Revelation. So that... uh, his believers in this age could look at these epistles, see the truth in them, see the situation in which they live, and make their choice Amen. where they will be. That's right. Will they be in Thyatira? Will they be where? In Sardis? Uh, this is basically the, the, uh, the protesting against uh, Thyatira, and this, of course, is Protestantism, Sardis. Mm-hmm. The Restoration, that's the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Okay, then there is Philadelphia, which is the church that brings the Lord back. Amen. And then there is Laodicea, which is the fallen Philadelphia, which is uh, really despised by the Lord mm-hmm. as far as her condition. And he said that that church made him sick. <laughs> okay. So we don't want to be in any of those uh, right. those ones of the four, and and anything else that exists on the earth in nature, or in principle, attaches itself to one of these four. Okay, it may not call itself that, but it is in essence related to that. If it's not a first cousin, it's at least a second cousin or something like that. So that there is really only four realms to be in at the Lord's return. Okay, so we have to be sure and choose the right one. Now the first churches, Ephesus, which was desirable, that that was good. It would have been good. And some that are there had the reality of Philadelphia, you see. But they died. That church ended, and so uh, history went on, and it, and you see, uh, instead of uh, uh, several things happening, like four things are going on on this earth today, for the period of time that we are in now, there was only really one thing going on, right? basically speaking, mm-hmm. you see. So Ephesus ended, yeah. you see, the, the uh, desirable church ended uh, after just the first century, And then came in the church we're into now, which is Smyrna. And Smyrna has a history that is longer. It's over twice as long as Ephesus. 
Okay? Uh, and so it has a history, and then we'll get to Pergamus, and its history is longer than Smyrna. Right. Okay? Then we'll get to Thyatira, and it has a long history. It will end up with the longest history. That's right. Okay? Because it started, you see, in the late 6th century, and it's still going today, and it's worldwide in nature. Okay? It's truly big. It's the big tree of Matthew 13. Okay? Now, uh, to, talk about, to talk about Smyrna, uh, uh, of what was going on at that time, the church in Smyrna, uh, we know from history, is referred to as the suffering church or the church under persecution. The word Smyrna, of course, is derived from the word myrrh. Okay? Myrrh implies that there is something there to produce suffering. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, especially during this period of time, it was suffering even unto death. That's right. Okay? These are the words of this epistle. Okay? Now, uh, how many... Uh, how many uh, maybe this morning have not yet read these words to the church in Smyrna? Some haven't read the words? You've all read them? Okay, then we'll, uh, we'll just uh, start, start off uh, assuming you've all read this little, these little words. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. There's only four verses. Mm -hmm. This is a short epistle. Yeah. You know why? There's only one thing that's really happening in this epistle. And that is people are suffering right. and being persecuted uh -huh. and being uh, dealt all kinds of uh, uh, obloquy in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And so this is not a complicated thing. There's not, there's not a rebuke in this epistle. Okay? The Lord doesn't rebuke them about anything. You know why? Their whole life, or the, the general scope of this epistle is, the Christians were there fighting the battle, struggling to do one thing, and that was to be faithful to the Lord, even if it cost them their life. And, and so this is the age of persecution. It is also the age of martyrdom. Uh, the martyrdom that went on during this age was prevailing. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, you, could, uh, you could say that if you read some of the books of martyrs or some church histories or, or Fox's book of martyrs, where that's not a history, it's just a book of martyr after martyr in a chronological sequence, uh, that book is very good. And a lot of that book, a good chunk of that book, yeah. has to do with this, pic this uh, particular zone in church history that we call Smyrna. Okay? And a lot of people. And, of course, uh, histories tend to uh, give more uh, time or value to the people who were the leaders and some of the great men and women of God who did this and that. And so their martyrdoms are more chronicled and, e and more accessible to get to. But uh, there were a lot of people whose names we'll never know, but they, uh, they absolutely will receive a crown of life. Amen. You see, this age, no one knew much about them. But even though they were small and hidden and so forth, 
God knew the real situation. And He told them, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Right? A lot of people like this. A lot of, a lot of young ladies. A lot of, of uh, girls. Uh, I'm not talking about just the, just the uh, big public Christian figures. Okay, but uh, That's right. teenagers mm-hmm. who, who came in, you see, yeah. uh, they all suffered during this time. Not all the time unto death, but uh, it was a general suffering. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, you could also say that all of this takes place because there is such a thing called the Roman Empire at this time. And the Roman Empire was very powerful still at this time. And uh, in this empire, there are many, many provinces. And, uh, and the general thing that was happening in the whole Roman Empire, basically, was that this was a time of suffering and a time of persecution. And uh, some of the provinces, it was really, really intense. You are almost guaranteed death there. Some of them maybe just... Uh, some some real strong uh, dealing with you, like you would end up being uh, ex- exiled or something like that, yeah. uh, and so forth. But in general, the Roman Empire was unanimous in one thing, and that is, uh, don't let the Christians have any room to move. That's right. Okay, mm-hmm. this is the age when the Christians went underground. Okay, they. This is the so-called time when they had their meetings in cemeteries and catacombs at night under the cover of darkness in uh, far-out places. You see where they could uh, where they could have their simple uh, gatherings together and uh, not arouse the suspicion of the local uh, of the local people. You see who were not. Christians, but instead were into the Roman uh, uh, Empire's uh, pagan system of religion, you see, and their uh, multiplicity of gods, and these gods all having different aspects to them, uh, you know, one for this and one for that and so forth. Uh here, I think you could say, after the first century ended, you see, there was, there was the pure testimony that was still very desirable, but it was fading. Yeah. It was fading. Right. As we saw, the leaving of the first love became the source or the root mm-hmm. okay, of that fading of the lampstand. And so as that fading took place... Mm-hmm. Uh, this brought in a kind of a setting of the stage. It's, it was a setup for Smyrna to come in. Now, uh, as long uh, as long as these two things were existing, for a while there was no problem. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But even at the end of the New Testament, as we read it, mm-hmm. we see the persecution starting. Mm-hmm. We see Paul. That's right. Being persecuted, mm-hmm. right? And he was martyred. Okay, others were persecuted. Paul was brought before 
the Roman government, you see. And the Roman government was persecuting the Christians, even yeah. toward the end of some of the writings that we have in our Bible. Okay? But this was just the entrance into a lengthy 200-year period where this became the common thing in the Roman Empire instead of the exceptional thing. There was a time when Paul appealed to Caesar, and then there was a time when Caesar no longer, and the other Caesars no longer, you see, could be appealed to. In fact, they became great enemies. That's right. Okay, now... uh, the thing I'd like to say is, how did this happen? And I'd like just like to give you a simple explanation. And that is, we have a clash going on. You have a clash under an authoritarian political uh, governmental arrangement. And that clash is between the established pagan gods and the one true God uh, of the Christians. Right? Uh, At this time, at this time, uh, this clash, you might say, became inevitable. Okay? Once the great leaders died off, the apostolic age, uh, so called, was gone, then, you see, the uh, infiltration began. These, uh, these, pagan gods were worshipped by these Roman uh, people. Now, they were from all the conquered uh, nations and provinces around. But they all had their pagan gods. And Rome enforced these pagan gods on their whole territory, which which encompassed all of today's Mediterranean Sea. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, uh, Probably things wouldn't have been so bad except uh, mm-hmm. the evil enemy lurked behind the scenes. Yeah. You see? Yeah. And as, and as time went on, of course, things happened. Uh, sometimes some kind of calamity. Here's an earthquake. You know, a volcano erupts. That floods come and, and, you know, they didn't have the prevent... The prevent uh, right. Buildings. <laughs> type of dams and right. things. One of the major catastrophes of the time was right through the city of Rome. The Tiber River was flooded and Rome was just wiped out as far as uh, you know, as far as its living and its its provisions and things. I mean, it was a time of famine and so forth. You see, and uh, normal before before the Christians were around, they would really get scared that they had offended their gods. So they would do a lot of uh, offerings, offering and worshiping of their gods and so forth. You see, but now whenever something like this happened, this became a real nice, convenient way to say it's because there are Christians among us and they are worshiping their god. You see, and so the blame all the time got thrown toward the Christians during this time of Smyrna. Okay, and uh, the populace, now listen to this, the populace, the religious populace uh, began to say so much and bring up so much pressure, but they couldn't do anything because they were under the strong control of the Roman government. So the Roman government came under the pressure 
and it was the Roman government who would eventually give the green light or the red light as far as what they could do to Christians. And finally, uh, in, this, uh, uh, in this period of time, in this zone of time, the government really began to take the word of the populace and allow the Christians to be persecuted. And the phrase, the, 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 the common phrase, now this, this is a little joke in today's society, but this was the phrase that was popularized at that time in the Roman Empire. And that was concerning the Christians, quote, throw them to the lions. That was not what we deduced as a happening later. Hmm. That was their slogan, throw them to the lions, you see. And so at that time, we had uh, uh, the emperors. And this is, if you've ever read books in history, or uh, I remember when I was a teenager, I saw several uh, shows about the Roman Empire back during the time of, uh, of this period. Yeah. This, is when the, this is where in the great Colosseum in Rome, in the gladiators fought, and they always had a time at the end when they used to bring criminals out and have them face the beasts and so forth. That they uh, that lived under the floor of the Colosseum, you see. At this period of time, it wasn't the criminals they brought out; it was the Christians they brought out. Yeah. You see, and so uh, here in the arena, this was this was kind of the, at the capital, you might say. Mm-hmm. This is where the big show went on. Mm-hmm. You see, the big show was here. Yeah. And uh, they were they were <laughs> fed to the lions. That's right. Uh, different beasts. They were bears. Sometimes, uh, kind of like uh, bulls and things. Would they would just they were just out there and not not well, not with any protection and not just men. And usually the Christians would bunch together and uh, they would sing. And uh, some would kneel and pray, and the beasts just tore into them. You know, of course they were killed. And then someone later would go around and make sure they were dead. Right. This, this was something, you see, uh, part of our Christian heritage is that we stand not only on the shoulders of those who went before us, we stand on the blood of those who went before us. This is the real, this is the real picture of Smyrna. Okay. Uh, the, uh, oh, I don't know. The, uh, you might say, uh, this epistle, it says, you will have suffering ten days. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In fact, exactly, it says mm-hmm. tribulation. Yeah. You, in, in note five, uh, Roman numeral five, yeah. you will have tribulation ten days. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a very powerful government. We still use their numbers. We're in Roman numerals today. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. In Roman numeral five, you shall have ter- tribulation ten days. You see? This was a ten-day tribulation. Right. This, you see, this is prophecy. Everything is, everything is figurative. It wasn't, you know, a ten-day right. uh, right. thing. It was a two hundred something right. year. These dates are not to the exact year. We just would round them off to the nearest quarter century, uh-huh. okay? Because generally speaking, with just a few exceptions, uh, generally speaking, things 
had a little transition from one phase to the other that took some time. So you can't say, uh, in nearly every case, you can't say on this day some, I mean, even the communications would not allow that kind of thing to happen overnight, okay? But generally speaking, you see, for around 200 years this occurred, and this was called 10 days by the Lord Jesus, okay? And uh, this was fulfilled prophetically because during this time there was, I don't know the exact number, but there was a lot of Roman Caesars. They, they, their tenure of being a Caesar was really very short-lived. Yeah, right. Uh, they, there were many intrigues, many, a lot of things happening, going on, and so forth, uh, and so forth. But during this time, there were ten of these guys. Yeah that really turn the pressure on right. on the Christians. Right. Okay. Uh, some, sometimes people ask me, well, who were they and so forth. We have a few, you know, budding historians who really like to know this kind of thing, or they might do a paper on it somewhere. So <laughs> I think, let me tell you who the guys were, okay, <laughs> for your information. Okay. <laughs> I don't expect uh, Tony, you to write it down, but I, I know Scott Stone will write it down. Okay. The persecution started, of course, with uh, the the uh, Caesar that uh, was there, even with Paul, and that was Caesar Nero. Okay, so uh, he was the first one. Uh, Domitian was the second one. D o m i t i a n. The third one that lashed out against the Christians was called Trajan, T-R-A-G-A-N. The fourth one was Marcus. Don't ever name your kid Marcus. Marcus. <laughs> the fifth one was Severus. Wow. Right. The base word is severe. Right. The, the uh, sixth one is Maximum. The, se the, uh, sixth, the seventh one is uh, uh, Decius, D-E-C-I-U-S. The eighth one was Valerius, V-A-L-E-R-I-U-S. Valerius. V-A-L-E-R-I-U-S. The ninth one, and this one was a very strong persecution, was uh, Aurelius. A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S. Then the last one, which was the most violent, the most widespread, and the most severe, was Diocletian. D-I-O-C-L-E-T-I-A-N. Diocletian. Okay. You can look these up in histories somewhere if you'd like to and find out just what did happen during their uh, tenure in, in, in office there as the Caesar of the, the nation on earth at that time, civilization on earth. And you can say also this way that uh, it's amazing that there are ten of these guys and the Lord said, you'll have t tribulation yeah, ten days. Right. And it's also amazing that Diocletian's, the last uh, 
one of these, the last of these ten, his time of persecution lasted exactly ten years. Okay, so uh, you see there's, there's the prophetic side to it, and it also matches number-wise. The Lord, of course, foresaw all of this. Okay, uh, at this time, of course, uh, especially during the last reign of Diocletian, the uh, thing that prevailed here is the persecution became very organized and systematic based on succeeding edicts that he issued from his imperial throne in, in Rome. Okay, and one edict, uh, the, the uh, edicts began, they were uh, less severe, uh, and then the next one would be more severe, and then finally more severe, and then more severe. And it, now, finally, if you're even called a Christian, you have to be brought before the magistrates, and you have to either say, uh, I will renounce the Christian faith, or uh, uh, I will... Uh, you know, profess to be a Christian, and on that confession, one way or the other, would hinge what became of you. You see, this threw a lot of people on the spot. You see, and not—it wasn't just sometimes a quick death. There was a lot of torture involved. You see, and families were rent right down the middle because some of them held to continue to uh, worship the pagan gods, and in part, some uh, member of the family had been converted to be, uh, you know, a genuine born-again Christian, and they would confess Christ. And uh, it, this this became tremendous because it wasn't a matter like it is today in America. We just undergo uh, kind of some outward little circumstances. To them, uh, the pagan people had to sit there and watch a son or a daughter or somebody like that get get uh, banished mm. or uh, exterminated. Mm. And so they were begging them. They would say, please do anything. We will, you know, uh, we'll give, I mean, you can imagine their family pleading with them. I mean, not only your life, but our name. We can't, we'll never be the same. You see, we can't even live here any longer. I mean, this, these kinds of things went on and on and on. That's why you go back to the Gospels and read that. And the Lord says, I came to bring a sword. And it would divide even the members of the family. This was really uh, the case during the age of Smyrna. Can you imagine? Imagine when people knew family members were going to die unless they uh, uh, confessed to and, and offered sacrifice. Yeah. Not only confessed, but they would have to offer sacrifice mm -hmm. to a pagan god. That's right. You see? Mm -hmm. Not only this, but very interestingly, uh, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but they always attack, attacked these Christians, you see, these Christians did not have uh, any buildings. They didn't have any places. Uh, uh, and so when they went to meet, they always, they, they just gathered wherever they could. You see, they just had gatherings uh, without any kind of uh, structure because at that time, if they were seen like that, then they would all be captured, you see. So the catacombs was a reality. I mean, they did. And Rome worshipped there. But all through the, gover the uh, Roman government, they were worshipping in hiding. Mm. You see, and there would be they would praise and thank the Lord, and sing hymns and so forth. And uh, this was a kind of a real sweetness. Myrrh means the sweet.
suffering of Christ. The sweet suffering of Christ. You see? And don't you think their meetings under that kind of persecution had a kind of fragrance to it? If you could have a flashback in time, wouldn't you like to be maybe take a couple hours and be in that kind of meeting? And then flashback, of course. <laughs> well, a lot of things happened during that time, and thank thank God that there were so many that were faithful. Of course, not everybody was. Some people did uh, recant of their faith in Christ, at least outwardly, and uh, compromise and uh, offer a sacrifice. Their life was spared. And so this was a kind of a, a weakness. Uh, we can't blame them. No, none of us stand in a position to judge them. We might can judge on some things, but on these things, uh, we can't do it. Uh, who knows? At that time, even some of the... Uh, excuse me. Some of the uh, Christians, especially, I think, maybe some of the more... Uh, uh, maybe younger, more zealous type Christians, okay? But not having a, not having just a whole lot of experience with Christ, they became quite eager and they would even volunteer to be persecuted and sometimes they would go to the magistrates and, and say, here we are, you know, and I'm a Christian and so forth. And the magistrates were these wily, cagey old people, you know, who were uh, getting really good at carrying out persecution. And uh, so they would say, okay, and they would just take them on a little tour and they would go and see the beasts, you see. Or they would go and show them uh, the, the chair that would be heated to until it was, you know, red hot that you would have to sit in. Or, uh, you know, various types of torture uh, devices. And, and maybe they would show them someone who was being under torture under one of those type of devices, you see. Or maybe they would have to watch uh, before you make a decision. You know, you would come and watch the next execution when somebody was literally, uh, you know, devoured, killed by a, by a beast. Okay, a lot of a lot of different things happened. You see, at this time, uh, not everyone died, but a lot of them. A lot of them were maimed for life. When the Council of Nicaea met in 325. Uh, there were a lot of people there in that very important council at that time that had scars, lost ears, uh, uh, I mean, all kinds of you know uh, damages to their limbs and things that you could see they were objects of persecution. Anyway, a lot of these people who came with so much human zeal and so full of zealousness when they saw all that, they said, no thanks, and they went back, you see. And this, of course, this was a kind of a weakening to those who were trying to stand fast. And so finally, you know, all the ones who were burned to stand fast, they just... They just, if they were caught, if they had been imprisoned, they just 
prayed much and they asked other Christians to pray for, let's pray for each other. And the others who had not been apprehended yet, they said, pray for us that we will not fail in the hour of trial. They, 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 didn't, have, they didn't have this kind of haughty thing, you see. But they prayed, I, I, I'm weak. Will I, will I be faithful to the Lord Jesus? And, pray for, and they prayed for one another. And it was amazing. But, you know, uh, according to the principle of the Bible, it's in the suffering hour that the Spirit of God That's and right. of glory, glory rests upon you. Right. And so their fears, which were there in all of the pre-suffering times of their imprisonment, you see, when they were actually brought before the judgment seat there to determine, will you confess, will you sacrifice? A lot of them just stood firm. And they would say, are you a Christian? And they said, I am a Christian. And you know what they would usually add? And there is no wickedness among us. This was to counter, this was to counter the slander. That in their meetings, which were done at night under darkness in hidden places, you see, the part of the slander was that is during these meetings there were things going on that were wicked, and so uh, uh, this was another this was another devilish lie, you see. And they would say, "In our, there is no wickedness among us." They would give a testimony right like that. That's all. They didn't. They they were very short in the histories, and, and you just read very short statements. No, uh, they didn't stop to preach the gospel. They just gave short statements. Yes, I am a Christian, and there's no wickedness among us. You see, and and they would give them another chance. And do you know the consequences? And they would say it again and again and again, like giving your serial number in World War II. I am a Christian, and there is no wickedness among us. This was serious. I mean, there were mothers, young mothers brought up there, and their family members were there. And their family members would do everything to break their, their will. This is the tremendous pressure. Listen, some of them had little babies, little kids. And they're, you know, they're... <laughs> The uh, grandparent would have them and say, you know, for the sake of your daughter, for the sake of your little son here, just say, just just say that I'm not a Christian. Just say it. Mm. You know? Can you imagine? And they would say, I am a Christian. There's no wickedness in my So you see, this was a real... Their death is uh, the death of a martyr. Yeah. This is a real martyr's death. And this was a sweet fragrance. The sweet suffering of Christ. Uh, Christ as the, the example of being faithful unto death in such a way became so real to these people. And that was a sweet thing to them. I'll tell you, if we were there, we wouldn't think about a lot of things, but we would really consider very, very much that we were following the lead and we were walking in the steps of the Lord Jesus Himself in our experience. You see? So they considered themselves uh, uh, that to them it was a privilege. You know, when all else was gone and the only thing left for you was death, if you say, I am a Christian, then it became the only thing you had to offer to God. And so you wanted it to offer it 
with, with all your being, with all your heart. It's either that or, or rejected. And so they just became so clear, so pure, and so forth. You see, it was quite a testimony. And the effect on it upon the people who were around it began to really be quite strong. So that during this time, like Neil brought out earlier, there were so many testimonies, even among the executioners. That's right. That these people not only died uh, without, you know, cursing and, and, you know, blaming the universe and cursing the right. day they were born and so forth. They did it in meekness. They did it in humility. They did it in forgiveness to the ones who were putting them to death. And they did it in prayer for those who killed them, just like Jesus did. See? In this way, you see why Revelation really uses this word, the testimony of Jesus. They partook of the testimony of Jesus in the aspect of His sufferings like no other period in church history. Okay? You know, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Paul says, that I may know Him. Right? That I may know Him. Then, do you know what it says after that? And the power of His resurrection. And what? The fellowship of His sufferings. See, being conformed to His death. The fellowship of His sufferings, you see, was really their... They entered into the fellowship of the Lord's sufferings. You see? And they had that testimony with them. So many things happen. I just... Uh, if you've never read some histories along this line, it's very inspiring. I'll tell you, it, 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 knocks, it knocks you for a loop. Because to them, death was their offering. I mean, we we, yeah. we, we, all, we, we think I'm offering my life. They, they were reduced to the point of offering their, their death, you see. And the Lord's promise to this church is, is, is if you will be faithful yeah, to right. death, I will give you a crown. That means in the, in the Bible, crown represents reward. Amen. I will give you a reward of life. Amen. Okay. Well... Uh, I, I, I'm with this with this particular book, Smyrna. Uh, this epistle, uh, the points don't mean as much as if you get the the real flavor and the the understanding right. with the feeling. This this epistle is really a, a, an epistle, mostly a feeling rather than of knowledge. There's not a lot of knowledge here. Right. Okay. Uh, but it is it is critical that you pick up the feeling right. That's right. of this book. Uh, one thing I, I might mention here, because we're into the suffering church, and praise the Lord, that's only one of the seven churches. Right. But it is there. Okay. And it's not right that Christians should not know the truth in its full spectrum. You have to know all the things. The Christian life, the Christian life is not a life of, quote, outward, material, human blessing for this life. No. If so, Smyrna was very, very right. sinful right. and away from God. That's right. No, and that's not the case. They got the crown. 
Okay. That's right. Uh, so we have to kind of answer the question a little bit. Well, why, why is suffering needed? You see, why do Christians need to suffer? Well, uh, I just give you a couple of simple things that maybe would help you understand a little bit. Uh, I would say, first of all, uh, the Bible and now we can say our experience tells us that we must undergo certain human sufferings in order to, number one, purify us. The Bible's concept of suffering is a purification. Okay? Gold tried by fire. The sufferings would work out for us. The afflictions would work out for us an exceeding eternal weight of glory. Is was Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Okay. So we need to be purified. Don't you realize? I, I just tell you myself, I certainly realize that there are things in me, in my being, uh, traced all the way back to the fall of Adam that are, have not been purified. And uh, uh, suffering is needed for these to get flushed out so that they can be dealt with, so that the purification can be real. Right. To be purified is a kind of a is kind of the uh, backside or the, the the dark side of the word transformation, right. the purification. Okay, because transformation is really much more than purification, but purification is part of transformation. Thing, there are things we still need dealt with. We have to admit this. Can anybody say they don't need to be more pure, more purified even by the Lord Jesus? Okay. Well, maybe this will happen without the course of suffering, but, but you can't say everything like that. Okay. I say this because you're not high schoolers any longer. We don't say this to the high schoolers. But you see... Uh, some of you have had a pretty, pretty, uh, you know, a pretty uh, smooth ride up till now. Then this is something for you to know for your future. Some of you have already had a taste or two of uh, a little rough spot, and so you can identify a little bit with what I'm saying. Okay, it's to purify you. Okay. Uh, then I would say it's also to preserve. Number one, to purify. And number two, we need this. Tribulation is a preservation. I will just mention it this way. Christians, because they are also human beings, don't flourish when everything is just right. Just like in history, the church never flourished when things were just right. You see? And so when we become adults, when responsibilities come along, when life gets full of complications, well then there will be sufferings that will be incurred uh, as we go along. Uh, you can't follow the Lord. You cannot walk in His steps if you, if, you, if you pull out the concept of suffering. How can you do it? That's right. Yeah. 
you would think you you would think that Isaiah said a man of uh, uh, joy, happiness, and good times instead yeah. of a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, right? No, this is this. I tell you the truth, it's devilish. That's right, absolutely. It's devilish. So don't take it. Uh, right. Our joy is not in what we have and what how things are going. Our joy is what is in God Himself, right? It's in the Bible. It is the joy of the Holy Spirit, not not just you know some other kind of thing, humanistic type thing. Okay. So we need to be preserved. If let's just present, let's just pretend. Okay, I'm the Lord, and you're a believer. Okay. Okay, I'm not. No suffering's going to come to you. I, I guarantee it. See, your own, you, you, you just skies are going to be blue for you. See, you will slide and slide and slide until probably you are a. Christian dropout. And we might find you somewhere tucked away in some dark corner of this world somewhere that uh, you might even have to think hard to remember what it was like when you were in a sweet contact with the Lord. Don't you think, you don't think this has not happened? See? Listen, we, we, all of us, we don't know. We don't know yeah. what, would have, what, what would have become of us mm -hmm. if the Lord did not intervene sovereignly to arrange us to be kept by Him. And one of the ways He does it is by arranging our circumstances to keep us in a condition so that our heart would stay for Him. So never despise suffering. There's a lot of excellent verses in the Bible that really confirm this point. Right. Don't despise the suffering. Okay. Uh, anyway, it's needed in this way. <clears throat> Let me uh, try to give you here in this epistle, you see these six uh, points. They're very simple points. The epistle is very simple. And in gleaning this, I would like to kind of say this. Uh, in this epistle, I believe, are the critical points to show us the way to suffer that will produce profit and gain for our spiritual life personally and for the building up of the church corporately. Okay, so I would like to break these points down into five or six way, ways that we can glean out of here that show us how to go through our human living and meet adversity. Okay? Uh, okay, number one in Roman numeral one. It says, "...unto the messenger of the church in Smyrna write." These things says the first and the last, who became dead and lived again. Okay? Again, we see here the Lord speaking. And this is also another testimony of the Lord Jesus being all-inclusive. He is not the one who says here, I am 
I am the one uh, whose uh, uh, feet is as burnished brass as, as if they had been fired in a furnace. That was part of, that's part of his description. But you see, the Lord Jesus gives that part of his being to meet the exact need right. of that church. Right. Just like he does, just like he gives that part of his being to meet the need we have on any given day. You see? So to the church in Smyrna, he was two things. He was the first and the last. And he was the one who became dead. As we know, he was crucified on the cross and he was resurrected and he lived again. Right? So he is all-inclusive. You see, he's whatever you need. He is that. This is a strong word to show that Christ is everything uh, man needs. Okay? Uh, when you say first and last, I'll just use Neil's little diagram here, you see, uh, and, and, and say this way, you see. Uh, instead of those words, I'll just put he's the first right here. You see, and he's the last right here. And this is not the church age, this is, this is eternity. He is the first and he is the last. You know, this is what Revelation says. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. You see? This is the first point I want you to get, you see. Is you have to realize that... Uh, let me call this point the sovereignty of suffering. You have to see the sovereignty the sovereignty of suffering. Now, it may not register with you now, but give me a minute, okay? You see, since Christ is the first, there's nothing here, this direction. And since He's the last, there's nothing here, this direction. This means everything, everything is in this zone. He is the first and He is the last. So nothing exists outside Him. And that includes suffering. There is exercised by the, by the one who is the first and the last a sovereign control of events, environments, situations, etc. that He allows His people to have but he will never allow anything to touch them that is not within his sovereign arrangement and control it will not get to you because he is the first and the last you see if he were not the first and the last if something came in he would have to jump in and try to beat it off you see then he might be the rescuer, but he would not be the sovereign one. Okay. So suffering is altogether under God's sovereign control. Besides what he allows, just even like with Job, you know, Satan had to get permission to touch Job. That's because God's sovereignty cannot be violated. You see, you can't be touched. Sorry, you, you might say, oh, Satan, what, 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 what? Listen, it, it might be Satan, but if it is, even Satan is under God's sovereign control. Because why? Jesus is the first and the last. 
Do you see this vision? It's a vision to me. You cannot. This is this is a comfort. This is a comfort. The church in Smyrna needs to hear the Lord Jesus say, "I am the first and the last." This means, do not fear what you are about to suffer. See, the words in this epistle take out the fear, so that he can, so that he can say, like a number four, "Do not fear what you are about to suffer." See. Yeah. Y'all, y'all agree with me? God is sovereign. Nothing, whatever He touches you, you can take from His hand. You can accept from the from the uh, uh, Father's hand is is good, is proper, is well pleasing. Can you do that? <laughs> I know it's easy to say it today. <laughs> but when, when, but when. You know, the blowtorch gets turned on and the heat comes. Mmm, it's a temptation. Where am I? What's happening to me? What did I do? What, what's wrong? You know, is this worth it? Is this... Oh, my goodness, our mind is just swirling, spinning, you know, and so forth. You know what? Something needs to stop all that. Let me tell you what will stop is the Lord telling you. Stupid. I am in sovereign control of every item of your life. See? Let me count the hairs on your head if you don't think so. I don't, I don't even need to count. You have exactly blah, blah, blah. Now, doesn't, that, doesn't that sound like sovereign control? That's right. Yes, he exercises sovereign control. Well, I just like you to see this. I, I, I don't have, I don't, saints, believe me, believe me. The Bible says, you know, we should have a mind to suffer. But you can't have a mind to suffer if you don't have a vision of what's going on. Okay? To say, I'm a stoic. And uh, so forth. You know, the Spartans had, mind, their mind was to suffer. They were trained to suffer, the Spartans. You know, that's why they put their kids out. If they lived, then they would be a good Spartan. If they didn't, if they died, right. there was a flaw in their, in their person. You see, They were very, very, they had a mind to suffer, but they had no vision. Mm. They, they suffered for the sake of being a warrior. We suffer for the sake of God's gaining His eternal purpose. Okay. Well... The second point is right after it, and he's not only the first and last, but he's the one who became dead and lived again. So that's point number two. The one who became dead and lived again. And I would say here we need to see the second point related to suffering, and that is we need to see the power to suffer. Right, right here we have the power to suffer. The Lord Jesus became dead and lived again. You see? There was a time. I mean, this, this happened precisely, exactly to the Lord Jesus. He was a living human being on this earth and at a certain date in history, He was crucified on the cross at Golgotha and, and uh, He was there and He died on that cross. Mm-hmm. And He was buried. Right? 
And on the third day, He was, what? Raised. He lived again. Amen. You see? That was His, what? Resurrection. He was raised by the power of God. And, and so He is the reality of resurrection life. Amen. See? So what, what we're here seeing is, did the Lord Jesus just suffer in and of His own accord? No. He suffered by the power of God. The Father indwelt Him and He went through everything. He, he said things like, well, Father, under, under the intense persecution, He said, Father, this seems pleasing in Your sight. What's pleasing? That I'm going through this. He was perfected. Mm-hmm. He, 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 uh, he, he uh, uh, learned obedience by the things which He, he suffered. You see? So, uh, here, you see, we have the person, the Lord Jesus who died and lived again. Now, uh, thank the Lord that we do live in a country that the government protects us from death. It does. We have religious freedom. Thank God that there have been, there have been centuries upon centuries mm-hmm. when that did not exist. We don't know what that feels like. We, we don't go, have to go underground. Okay, but anyway, the reality is there. Uh, but you see, sufferings are a kind of a, a situation. You see, when Christ died on the cross, that cross was not the end. That cross was the beginning. Yeah. You see, instead of, a, instead of an end, it became a gate, yeah. a threshold to what? Resurrection life. He had to go through it to, to be resurrected. Amen. And the principle with us is the same. You see, the threshold, suffering does what? It brings us to experience a death being applied to aspects of our being that are still part of the old creation, our old man especially. And that situation puts us on the, on the brink, at the gate, on the threshold of experiencing the resurrection life. And Christ is a resurrection life. And if you were, at, if you are at any time in a suffering situation like this church was, to know that there was somebody who became dead and lived again is just saying to you, "I am the resurrection." Just like, just like, uh, you know, he told Mary and Martha, you know, uh, in John 11, "I am the resurrection and the life." I am the resurrection. You can, you have the power to go through any ordained suffering because what? I am the resurrection. The resurrection power is the power that we have to go through suffering and not be crippled by it, but be purified by it, to be enhanced by it. Got it? Okay. So now you see the sovereignty of suffering, and now you see the power to suffer is here, right? Then, uh, Roman numeral 2, it says, I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are in really bad shape. Rich. Do y'all all believe that word is the right translation? Yeah. I know your blessing and wealth. Hallelujah. No. (laughs) 
know your tribulation. I know your tribulation and poverty, but but you are rich. You're rich. Amen. You're rich. Oh, Lord Jesus. Amen. Oh, we're so rich. Amen. Okay, but let me come back to that in a minute. You know, you know what's really good here. So touching. It's just this. The Lord says, I know. That's right. I know your what? Tribulation and your. I know. I know. I will call this, let's call this the sympathy. The sympathy in suffering. This is God's heavenly divine sympathy. What? I know. You see, you see up there is the great God, I know you're suffering. No, He is there as the Lord Jesus, who Himself, having been through the gamut of suffering, can say, I know your tribulation. I know. Are you having more tribulation than Him? No. Are you having more poverty than Him? No. I know your situation. This is why he's able to be so sympathetic and so understanding and so knowing. He knows, you see. And not only he knows his, not only he knows the whole world, but he says, I know your, I know your, I know your situation. See? You know, in the suffering hour, here's what we have to remember. He knows what's going on infinitely more than you do. <laughs> now think, think of it. Just think of the arrogance. The think of the arrogance of our fallen natural mind and heart. That we think we're more clear. You know, you know why we worry and, and why we go around and, we, and why we have all these questions? Why? And we, all, these que- all of this mean, and, and we really would like some answers to them. This shows the arrogance of our fallen nature. As if I know, as if I really know. I have the key, I know. I'm the one who's got, I've got to figure it out. I've got to work it out. I've got to do some, some maneuvering here. I've got to work on it. You see? I know what's going on. It's getting clearer to me all the time. I, I, uh, listen, Neil, you don't understand. Can I have some time so I can explain to you my situation? I, I mean, here's my situation. I, and I, I, see, it's just so clear. It's so clear. Right. See, now you understand my situation, you see, so forth. You know, you know uh, we have about a thimble full of clarity. <laughs> Next to a swimming pool that's right. of water. And we got a thimble full of, of that water. And that's about how much we really grasp what's happening. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. See? That's <laughs> but the right. Lord says, I know, listen, listen, if you're going to ever prevail in the suffering hour, if you're going to ever prevail, you've got to get one thing really burned into your being. That's right. And that is, He knows infinitely more than you know. You don't know. You just think you might know. 
Maybe years later you might know. I would say yes. Years later you can analyze what you, you what you went back, what you went through years later. But even that knowing is still limited. See, just just that the Lord Jesus would say, "I know." Don't you believe He knows better than we know? Surely, I know. I know. Listen, just these two words, I know. Whenever some Christians in the, in the turmoil of their situation, in all of the anxiety of their situation, and they've gone to the Lord Jesus, and He's just spoken two words to them, I know your situation. Some words like this. Right away, peace came into their heart. And anxiety flew away. Because he said, I know. That's all we need to hear. Just, I, we don't, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, number one, do this. Number right. two, three, right. four, five, take, take, this, take this little plan I have. Right. He doesn't need to do this. This doesn't bring peace. You see? He just, all he needs to do is say, I know. And because he's God, that's good enough. I know. This means that we're under his sovereign control, doesn't it? I know. He says, I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Okay? You're rich. Here, this is a, this is a book, a, a epistle on suffering. But here is richness. Amen. So we have to call this the richness of suffering. Amen. This fourth point is the richness. See, you probably didn't think we were going to have something like this, but this is the richness of suffering. You are rich. You know, in Laodicea, he says, you think you are rich. That means they weren't rich. They were depraved. They were poor. They were at the bottom. But these people, these people were at the bottom. You know what? They considered themselves at the bottom. And to these people, the Lord says, you are rich. It's amazing. If you think you're rich, you're probably in bad shape. If you really think, you know, some people really think they're spiritual, that they really don't have a lot of problems, that they're really immune to certain temptations that other poor Christians have, and and uh, they go on like this, and it's and uh, they have this kind of attitude. You see, uh, you know, uh, if if the attitude is like that. Then they're in Laodicea. That's right. Thinking you're rich and that you have need of nothing. And you don't know. You don't know that you're blind. He says, You don't know that you're poor. You don't know that you're poor. They were self deceived. You know, sometimes uh, a young person or a new person in the church. Since I'm not young like you anyway, and I'm not new in the church for sure, they, they think they think I'm in a, a different realm. They do. They do. They they talk to me, and I can tell right away. They think I live in a different realm. <laughs> they'll say something. They'll say something like, uh, uh, "Do you ever have an experience like this?" It's something like you know. Uh, as, as silly as, you know, do you ever sleep at night or something like that? <laughs> not, not that. I'm just <laughs> hypothetical. But it's about, that, it's, it's about that silly, you know? I mean, you know, have you and your wife ever exchanged words? 
We don't need to exchange words. We can just exchange glances. And it's, it's adequate, you know. We, can, we speak volumes just, just by, you know, blinking our eyes. So I, I tell them always, you know, uh, you know, it's, I, I said, you know, divorce uh, has honestly never entered my mind. Never entered my mind. Uh, and they'll think, wow, what a brother. And then I'll say, of course, murder has. But not <laughs> That's, of course, that's a joke, but saints, saints, listen, our tribulation, our poverty, we're, we're all the same. We're all the same. But listen, listen, when we're in this kind of condition, we're rich. Amen. We're rich. You can say, wow, that means the whole third world is rich with Christ. No, it doesn't mean that. It means rich according to God's economy. Rich according to... What, what, what are we rich in? What are we rich in? Are you rich in a surplus of finances? Are you rich in a big house? Are you rich in a few boats? You got some yachts? Are you rich in uh, having some second and third homes? Neil, it'd be good if we had some second and third shirts. Right. A pair of shoes. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, the Lord has called some people who uh, were rich in this world, but He called them and He warned them strongly. Yeah, that's right. So, basically speaking, will not be those kind of people. God's people. You know, in James it says, He has chosen, He has chosen the what? The poor in this world to be rich in faith. Rich in faith. That's right. Right? That's right. So, you see, here's a richness. Here's a richness. Don't, 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 don't take the other way. Don't be tempted. Don't be deceived. Don't listen to any kind of... Uh, Childish interpretation of the of the Word of God no. that says richness is something other than the experience of Christ. That is all you have of reality, and that's all that you will transfer into the next age. That's right. I appeal to your to your logic, your intelligence, and especially to your conscience. That's right. You tell me you don't think that's the word. You tell me I'm off. And uh, so forth, and that that this other stuff is the way God really. You, in your conscience, you tell me that. I don't believe you can do it. You know that if you've read the Bible, you know what I'm saying matches the Bible, right? That's right. Well, uh, I would say we can say we can look at it this way, and that is that we're rich. Uh, because. When we go through our hour of tribulation, uh, 
a couple of things are happening. One is uh, something's being taken away from us. Suffering strips away excess baggage. There's a stripping power. <laughs> you know, Jesus was the suffering Savior. You know, He never had any excess baggage in His whole life. But boy, Peter had the excess baggage. Most of it he carried in his, in his concepts. Most of the baggage was his thought patterns. And he, he paid the price. He had to go through some suffering, right? Can you see him on the streets of Jerusalem after he denied the Lord three times by himself? Do you don't think bitter weeping was his portion? The very thing he swore he would never do. He did. He did it. And for all he knew, he was banished from this person that he knew so well as God forever. What a period of suffering. I, who knows what was in Peter's mind at that time. Right? That's why after he was resurrected and the first ones that, that saw the Lord Jesus, the Lord gave them a special word. Do you know what he said? Go, go tell my brethren and Peter. Just those words, and Peter. Rescued Peter. Go tell Peter. Just that the Lord said, tell Peter. Peter was totally delivered from the thought that the Lord was leaving him out. He was no longer worthy, you know. Well, there's a stripping away that occurs. Yeah, that's, that's right. It's the way it is. It's the way gold is purified. Gold has to be stripped of the alloys that are mixed with it. So there's a stripping away, right? This is a Bible concept. You read First Peter. It's, it's so biblical. Gold tried by fire. It's purifying. Fire doesn't hurt gold. Fire suffering doesn't hurt Christ in your in you, but it does. It does uh, burn on the outward man. Okay. Well, uh, one prevailing thing, it not only strips away, but it also supplies. Because in the hour of trial, as in no other particular time in your Christian life, in the hour of the trial, the Lord Jesus is so real and so near. So real, so near, so precious, so valuable and treasurable to you at that time that it makes you wonder why I have why I have in all my life cultivated a relationship with the Lord like this. 
difficulty. He becomes so near and so real. This is why all the people were able to suffer and be martyred for the Lord Jesus. Because in the suffering hour, he was so near, so real. See, the Spirit of God and of glory rested upon them at that time. See, you, you think about it. You think about it. You know, one, one time, uh, this is a little personal testimony, I had an experience of going through a, a time of, of a, a, a time of trial. And this thing was protracted out over a lengthy period of time. So I couldn't say, well, it'll all be over next week. You know, it wasn't like a deadline or something. It was just something that had to be worked out. And I, I, I couldn't do it. And so... Uh, in that realization, uh, there was something working inside, mm. you see, mm. inside of me. Mm. And at that time, uh, the Lord gave me uh, numerous verses from the Bible mm. that were absolutely, it was, it, was, it was as if, the Lord himself was sitting right like we are and he said those verses to me he said that's your verse and you you know don't don't ever forget it I mean it was spoken by the spirit within and those verses became so so real and he was so near I just uh, I tell you the truth I hated the situation but I really was uh, I really was I had a sweet sweet fragrance of Christ inside. It was a sustaining there. And then when the thing kind of uh, ended, you know, not in like that, but it, it just kind of ended, uh, I recall that that, that uh, concentrated sweetness uh, became a little diluted. And to the point I told the Lord Jesus, I said, Lord, Lord, I miss you. I miss you. Oh. I miss you. You see, that was so special mm. that I was so aware of it. I just told him I missed him. Mm. You see, it was, and, and I dare not pray for the suffering to come back. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted that special portion to come back. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Then, uh, let's see, that was number four, the richness of suffering. Yeah. Okay, let me cover a couple more. Uh, number three says, And the slander of those who call themselves Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. Well, here I would say, the main point is, if you're going to suffer, we need to see some strategy here. Right. So the strategy is negative because it's from the enemy. And uh, we'll call this the weapon. We could even call it Satan's weapon in suffering. What he uses and his weapon is foremost one thing, and that is slander. Wow. Mm. Slander. Mm. And the slander of those who call themselves Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
Does that hit you like it needs to? (laughs) Who who is a Jew? That That is one of God's people. And what is a synagogue? It's where God's people gather to worship God Himself. And the Jews, and and, uh, uh, John says here in Revelation, they say they are Jews, but they are not Jews. And the place where they worship is not a synagogue of God, but is a synagogue of Satan. Mm -hmm. So we have have a slander here. You know, Satan is another name for... For the devil is the slanderer. He's the right. he's the accuser right. of the brethren. He's the slanderer. So when you come to this point, you have to realize uh, to suffer, especially in this age, is to suffer under the blows of slander. Sorry, sorry. We all love you until you become a Christian. We all, by we I mean all of. Your, all of the world you lived in. They all love you until you became a Christian or more accurately until you became a, you know, an absolute Christian. We, we all loved you. But after that, oh, I remember how lovable I was to certain people and then how they just kind of distanced themselves from me. But for what? For this one thing. Very good reason. Another repeat of church history. Right. Right. You know what? <laughs> then the slander comes. That's right. It may start a little, you know, if that's good, but don't be don't be balanced. Don't be too extreme. In other words, in other words, don't be absolute. Right. Right. Uh, some other types of slander would come along, you see. Uh, and basically, they all have a kind of a religious root. Now, I say this very, very guardedly, but I want you to realize that when we talk about slander, mostly it is from a religious root. That's why here it says, Jews and the synagogue of Satan. That is a religious context. In John 16, 2, you know, that's where it says, there'll come a time when they will kill you. Right. And in doing that, they are thinking that they are doing God's service. Right, right. Dealing death and doing it in the name of God. That's what John said. And he said it to... to the uh, his disciples, you see, who lived then in the midst of the present evil age of that day, which was, which was the Jewish religion. See, the Roman government put Christ to death, but it was on the insistence of the Jewish religionists at the time. You follow me? Yep. The suffering in the New Testament was not secular in nature. Okay. Okay. Uh, let me have your attention real carefully. Okay, uh, Steve, could we? Could, could you go out and open up the shutters because it's getting warmer? Yeah. Would that be okay? Yeah.
and I think we're okay. Uh, maybe we can open up uh, one over here too, and then we'll get some breeze in here, okay? Thank you. Okay, now listen real carefully. Uh, in the time, in the time of the apostles, and in the time right after that, the persecution was was from the Jewish element. Right. Okay. Because Christ did not fit into their concept of the Messiah. And they became a synagogue of Satan. Don't you realize they stoned Stephen to death? That's right. While he was beholding the resurrected and ascended Christ. Right. Throwing rocks at one of God's absolute overcoming ones. Throwing rocks. I mean they killed they killed him. You see? This was what this was done in the name of who? God. You think Paul was persecuting the Christians in the name of the Roman Empire? No. No. It's the name of God. Right. See, this is this is history. History goes on like that. History is repeated here. Mm-hmm. You see, in Smyrna, in Smyrna, it was not so much it was not so much uh, uh, the Jews uh, in the other further flung provinces, but there was a lot of paganism here. This was still a religious route. And they did not want to see their old system go out and something new come in. Yeah. You see? And so they had to slander. They had to invent things. They had to say there's wickedness among you. Uh, awful things. Uh, lousy things uh, that you know don't bear repeating. Uh, transpire when, when the Christians meet. Otherwise, why do they meet in hiding? You see? They had all kinds... Of, they, they, they had ways to tell, you know, and lay the blame and concoct all kind of things. This is just, an, this is just accusations. Right. See, uh, today we would call them allegations. Right. We would call them allegations, mm-hmm. meaning something somebody says but has not been proven to be true. That's slander. Right. Right. Well, uh, I, I just want you, I just want you to see this. <laughs> Yes. You see, yes. Uh, let me let me tell you a little bit of my experience. Good. Uh, to come into the church life, to get saved, no slander. To become absolute for the Lord. In other words, when I really became absolute for the Lord, some slander rose yes. up. Right. Some of my good friends, even some of their parents, evidently got the word. So they, I could tell when I was around them. They they put on a front of still being nice, but uh, that real familiarity that I had with some of my close friends and their parents, uh, it was gone. But praise God, I started getting familiar with God's family. I changed families. That's right. Amen. <laughs> Let me tell you this, you know, when I, but when when I touch the church life, when I touch the church life, oh, the slanderer who was taking a nap, I guess, woke up, right, and started to slander like crazy. There were several of us that touched it at the same time in school. We're in school. Mm-hmm. I was, I had just turned twenty. Mm. 
or maybe it's late 19, early 20, I don't know, I was that age. So I was the age of a few of you, but younger than nearly everybody here. And uh, uh, myself, uh, my very close friend, and then another close friend, uh, then another not so close friend. Anyway, all of us touched the church a little bit. I touched it first. And I touched it in a strong way to the point that one summer between my uh, freshman and junior year, I mean freshman and sophomore year, I went out to a conference and stayed for five weeks uh, to listen to this ministry of a man who was a co-worker of Watchman Nee, whose two or three books I had read that year. I said, if he's anything like Watchman Nee, I'm going to find out this summer. So I did that. Can everybody hear me okay? So I did that. And I went out there and <laughs> I was I was just flabbergasted. I was, I mean, I was in another realm. I, I, uh, I wasn't used to this reality. Actually, it scared me a little bit. Yeah, right. It just scared me a little bit. Uh, I wasn't used to their ways. I wasn't used to their meetings. Uh, even where I was, to say amen was to turn everybody's head, you know. I had purposefully gone to everything. Every spare moment I had during those, up till that time, after I became a Christian, I was going to listen to different people speak and to read their writings. So I got a lot fast. And when I heard him, I knew it was another realm. Another realm. <laughs> he would say he wasn't sure what he was going to share that day, and then he would get up in the morning and, and uh, go to the Lord, and the Lord would touch him with something. And then uh, he spent the rest of that day talking about that topic from the Bible. What's that? I mean, you know, where I came from, you know, it, the preachers would say, well, it was a very profitable vacation I had. Uh, we went here and uh, we did this and so forth, and I got to, and, and, I, and, and I'm so thankful I got to write, write out four sermons on my vacation. And here's this man who just wakes up not knowing what's next for, and he's got to speak the whole day and night, you know, and uh, he just, the Lord speaks and he just takes off and he just, you know, he just takes us through through uh, train rides all through the Bible, you know, and we're just cruising around. And uh, oh, and here's the line, and you know, and uh, he just uh, like a computer, he just runs it from Genesis through Revelation, you know. And we just, you know, you know the book, you know, the Tree of Life. We just finished. That was the first conference I heard. Not just, I mean, life was the word. Life was shocking. Right. The word tree of life was not, it was not even, you know, tree of life. What was that? Oh, my goodness. Life, regeneration, transformation, glorification, God's building, the parts of man, the triune God, the divine dispensing. Oh, it was like I, it, it was like I walked out of kindergarten and somebody had put me into a, a doctoral program at, at Stanford, you know, and I'm just, you know, what are those figures on that board up there? <laughs> so I adjusted a little bit and, uh, and I remember during the breaks, during the breaks, I used to, I just walked out, you know, there's long breaks because there are long meetings. We met from 8 o'clock in the morning till lunchtime. 
and then uh, we rested in the afternoon and fellowshiped over that morning. Then we met at night from 7 till about 10. And Brother Lee just cranked it out. I, I, I mean, I, he, he became a mystery to me. I never saw a man that could just speak for weeks, I mean, all day for weeks, and didn't, didn't feel like he just uh, was warming up. I mean, he just... I just didn't know that that existed, you know? So I realized, you know, this is, this is like Paul. This is the principle of Paul. This man has been constituted by God, and he has a ministry. He doesn't do a ministry. He has a ministry, you see. Anyway... So uh, this, I'm, I don't want to make this long. Anyway, uh, when when the, I came back, I immediately uh, influenced strongly a couple of my best friends to uh, listen to what I have to tell them. You see, and we need to meet together. I left. I left everything. I left all the things. Everything I was associated with, I just put the axe to it and said a brand new start. Uh, with a new view of Christ, a new view of the Christian life, and especially a new view of the church. So I, I, I just I, I dropped it. That's it. It's gone. Everything. Including my wife uh, to be. I just said, <clears throat> I have no idea whether you will do what I did or not, so this is the time to end it right here. That's it. The whole thing, I just blew it off. <laughs> okay. It was really quite a thing. Then, my, listen to this, my good roommate. Uh, we both came to school from different parts, but we met there both as freshmen, and we both uh, had scholarships to play baseball at this uh, Southwest Conference school. So we met there, and of course, immediately we were quite, you know, we had a commonality in that, and so we got to be friends and so forth. And he, and I found out he was a Christian. Very unusual way I found it out. But uh, I didn't know that until one day I said, how can you do that with a clear conscience? And he said, conscience? Are you a Christian? I said, yes. How can you do that? Said, oh, I can't do that. Then we started having fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 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 so we started that fellowship. You know what? Listen, listen, listen to this. That year, that year, we too, the other one didn't make it. He, uh, his father was a chaplain in the Air Force, and so he got too much uh, slander, and he couldn't take the heat. I still love that guy, but anyway, Lord, Lord knows he's in the Lord's hands. Anyway, so this happened, you see, and... Uh, 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 this ne- during that year, we dropped and came into the church, and that started things buzzing because this was a religious school, okay. And and uh, then we started to hear things. Started to hear things, and. Uh, uh, Things that, that from me being in L.A., thank the Lord I went out there for five weeks and saw firsthand. Because the things I started to hear were lies. They were slander. Lies. I know. I was there. I could say that. Right. Why, this man came from the Far East. Mm-hmm. Well, what's 19 or 20 year old 20-year-old person supposed to say, Oh, really? You mean he's not an American? 
you know, Superman was for the American way. Didn't you know that? He was, oh yeah, he was for the American way. <laughs> Brother Lee wasn't for the American way. He was for the heavenly way. <laughs> listen, listen. Nobody is is uh, is is appreciative or more appreciative, at least not by much, than I am of the United States of America. I boldly say, God raised this country up to be the wilderness in the in the tribulation. Okay. <clears throat> this is a unique country mm-hmm. in this aspect. And you'll never hear me say something negative about it. Uh, fundamentally, I mean, we have problems and we have situations, but to say something is negative about this country, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. But here, here was a lot of slander coming in, you see. This may be communistic. <laughs> communistic. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know for sure that the that the servant of God who was raised up to that began the practice of the of of standing on the ground of the church in China is now in prison. Right. Under the communist regime right. and is suffering for what he did there. So don't say anything about that. I know better. I know. I know the relatives, yep. and not only him, but many brothers and sisters that 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 began that we're here because of their stand. They uh, were persecuted to death. They were jailed to death. Mm-hmm. They died in prison. They were mar- They were martyred. He was a martyr in, in prison. You see, uh, we came into the, you know there was some of us in this country were in, and I was one of them. We were in the local churches while Watchman E was still alive. And we knew he was in prison. We prayed for Brother Nee. There was a time we heard about his release, and we got real excited. But um, you know, he was supposedly during doing a 20-year thing. Went into prison in 1952, and was supposed to be released in 72. And of course, in some kind of way, that was the year he died. He's in 72. So you see, I couldn't take any of this is a lie. I, I, I really I never knew any real liars in my life. Even in the world, because I, you know, as a young person being protected, that uh, uh, society not being quite in the shape that it's in today, uh, I just didn't know any liars. Right. Then in, then then get into the Christian circles and find out that for the first time you you touch real lies, real flat, ball face lies. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of things like that. Mm. You know, the coach of that team called us in at the end of our junior season. Mm. That junior year, he because he was under pressure too. There was a lot of persecution against us. You see, against we too playing playing there, but he couldn't stop it because we, you know, we were, you know, we were part of the, you know, we were a strong part of the team. Okay, and so he was in a he was in a quandary. You see, if he puts us on the bench, he's going to lose because we were, you know, we were. Uh, pretty prevailing in the 
in swinging the bat. <laughs> that year, that year, we, we both made all Southwest Commerce. We both made all Commerce. All Southwest Commerce. Both of us in the church. <laughs> in the church, it was at least twelve of us. I know. <laughs> You don't think this brought a lot of pressure, anyway? Some, some. This is a religious school. Right. It's a religious right. school. So they said. So they brought us in and says, "Okay, now they're going to really apply the ultimate blow. Either get out of that thing, get out of that thing, or we're going to terminate your scholarship." That was really going to supposed to really knock us over, right? See, that was easy. You just lost two ball players. And they not only lost two ball players, they nearly lost their team. I mean, they went to the bottom, last place. Last place, and they were so discouraged they even quit practicing for one whole week. Unheard of! And the coach nearly lost his job. He got so mad at one game, he took his team off the field and and uh, sent them back to the you know dressing rooms. And nearly lost his job. You don't do that kind of thing. And the whole thing was wild and bizarre. <laughs> I never saw anything. Let me tell you. You know what happened? They had a faculty meeting. This, see, it's not a big school like UT. It was a religious school. Some of you know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> it was a religious school. It was a religious school. We had a good, you know, this was before Texas won all, everything, you know. We, 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 we beat Texas regularly. I mean, we, they, they, uh, we were co-champions one year with Texas. And uh, anyway, uh, they had a faculty meeting a faculty meeting to discuss this problem. A faculty meeting. You know what? I don't know. I wasn't there and I, I, I just heard about it. I heard that was a very, that was a very heated faculty meeting. Huh. And you know why I know? Because, because my, I was, in, I was in the field of education. My professor, who was the professor in that department of education and later became uh, the chairman and you know on and on and so forth. He was, he was the guy. Everybody knew he was the guy. He and uh, for some reason, for some reason, he heard about some of this stuff, and he was a man of the world. He was not Christian. He was not a Baptist. He was, excuse me. He was not. <laughs> he was not. He was not any of that stuff. You see. And he stopped me in the hall one day. He stopped me in the hall one day, and he says, "Listen, listen. I have heard. I have heard what's happened. And I, you know, about this faculty meeting and this." Stuff. I, I have heard what's happened. And he says, I want you to know one thing. There are a lot of us on this faculty who absolutely disagree with that kind of stuff. There are a lot of us. By that time, the faculty was about 50-50 as far as religious persuasion. There are a lot of us who disagree with that. Now, you tell me, who persecuted us? The, the secular world or the religious world? You see, the roots are right there. Well, I'm just telling you. Uh, see, if you're going to be in, if you're going to be in a church life, no, no, we we have to be ready for persecution. We have to be ready. 
Okay? When some of the things I heard later that came along and I heard them, uh, things about uh, what we do or what we say, like uh, uh, one thing was that we're, we're not moral people. We're not moral. Can you believe this? We're not moral. We're immoral people. This is just like Smyrna that, that was accused of having wickedness in their meetings. This means they were doing immoral things. That's what it meant in, in the historical context. We're, we're not moral. Have you ever been in a place that was more moral than, than here? People say, well, y'all are so... Uh, you, uh, they search for a word, you know. There's not a modern word to describe it, you see. Well, I noticed that uh, brothers sit together and the sisters sit together and, and uh, what, what, what. And I uh, uh, said, why, why do you do that? And, why, and we said, we don't do that. They just do it. We don't, we don't have that teaching. That's right. <laughs> but they just do it. And I did too. And I still do. Do you understand me? You know the church. The church. The church doesn't uh, tell people what to do. You you have to, to believe me that, right? But you know there are there are some things we don't tolerate. We we don't allow anything of idolatry. Right. That's right. Because that's against God. Right. We don't allow anything of what. Well, I'd say division, because that's against the body of Christ. And we don't allow anything to do with immorality, any fornication, because that's against, that damages God's creation, man. So nothing against God, nothing against the body of Christ, and nothing against man's creation. We don't allow that. You could say we're immoral, we ought to, but I know for, I know for a fact there is a line in the church. And if you cross over that line... And you refuse to drop that life, that way of life. You're out. You're out. That's right. You're out. I don't mean you're out of Christ, but you are. You are. You are out of the church. That's right. You're gone. We don't. We don't. There are some things we don't take. As liberal as we are, as we, as much as we practice, let every man be persuading his own mind about nearly anything. There are some things. That we don't play around with, and this is one of them. Okay. Well, thank the Lord that uh, He's preserved the churches, and so, of course, we always have had problems because of of humanity. The test of whether a church is really one with God is not whether you have problems or not. It's whether these problems are solved or not. You can never avoid problems, but do they get, do they get healed and solved? Then you maintain the testimony of the church. Okay. This is a joke. This is a joke. Okay. It's... 
It's like saying uh, we're mindless. You know, this is a slander leveled against us. For we're mindless. I mean, you know, of course we have several PhDs and doctors and you know scientists. And I mean, some some of the saints among us have more brain cells and you know than they have. Uh, you know, <laughs> stars in the sky. I mean, it's, it's it's staggering. You know, and I'm very, I'm very, uh, you know, humbled sometimes by the intellectual capacity of some people I know of. I mean, I'm talking about some astrophysicists and things that I know they just love Jesus. You know, real wonderful people, but they, you know, they they they're something, right? <laughs> But we're mindless people. And we like to shift into mindlessness, mindlessness and we do this by chanting and praying and we have a mantra called, Oh Lord Jesus. And we, you know, blank out. We're, what we're doing is we're spacing ourselves out. You see, I'm just, I'm, I'm, no, this is what you do. You know, this is transcendental meditational type stuff and the, and the, uh, the mantra chanting when you're given a dharma a certain word to keep chanting until you kind of hyperventilate and blank out. <laughs> it's like this. Uh, here you have here you have uh, here you have the mind. You know where Christianity dwells today? Right here. They're in the brain. They're trying to they're trying to Take the Bible and figure God out through the avenue of the brain. Right. Revelation is a foreign experience. See? A spirit of revelation. What is that? So this is the mind. All the time thinking. All the time. See? Then, then uh, there is this other zone over here. This is a big reaction. And uh, I would call this... Uh, let, let's just use their nice word. Let's call this mindless. No, people, people, in all of the anxieties of modern society and so forth, they did escape. This, this is a, this is a, a Far East phenomenon that has been ushered into uh, the U.S., into Europe, and so forth, where you do practice certain exercises to do what? Blank out. Go into, I mean, a state of blankness. Okay, saints. Please remember, the local church brothers told you this. Remember, okay? The local church brothers told you this. <laughs> no. <laughs> One local church brother told you this. That's me, okay? The rest of you can speak for yourself. Though I know they would say the same. Saints, it is a thousand times better to be in the mind than to be mindless. That blank, that... I mean, sometimes it takes uh, anywhere from one to three to five hours to reach that state of concentrating on nothing. Have you ever tried to concentrate on nothing? Well, one way to help it is to take one word and chant it for about three to four or five hours. And you get into a kind of a state where you are blanked out. In this kind of condition where you are truly blanked out, then you are, you are open season for demons to get into your mind. Okay? I'm telling you this. Don't say the local church. I, 
if anybody's against this kind of, they don't know what's going on out there. Even the people who say that's a mind, they don't know what they're fooling with out there. Okay? But you see, can't you see, there's this, there's this big middle ground here. The Bible doesn't say blank out. And the, certainly the Bible doesn't say the natural mind is the key. Right? It says the natural mind does not discern the things of the Spirit of God. Okay. Well, what we practice here, you see, is uh, we have a spirit. We have a spirit. And we have a mind. And uh, our way is not to stay here, and it's not to stay here. What we do is very reasonably set our mind on the Spirit and enjoy Him because we don't have a vacancy in our being. The Lord Jesus Himself as the Spirit is within us. Amen. So we set our mind on the Spirit to contact Him and at no time while we're doing this does our mind blank out. We are very active in our mind, only we're, only we're having an activity that is not like this, where we're active with our mind being the source, but our mind is active in interpreting and enjoying what we are contacting in our spirit, which is the riches of Christ enjoyed through His Word. Okay, there's a big difference. So, this is a tree of knowledge. And this is also the tree of knowledge. See? And this is the tree of life. Amen. Romans 8, 6 says, right. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Amen. Okay? So, don't take any slander about this nonsense. I'm just giving you a few of my favorites here. <laughs> no, people... Sometimes people... I've known people that have left the church for one reason or another. And you know, you know what they come up with? Something like, uh, uh, the church is legal. We're too legal. The church is under the law. You know, they never knew what under the law meant until they were in the church. We're, that's our thing, to help people come out from under the law and get into the experience of grace. You see, they say, ah, oh, I'm under the law. So, they, you know, they didn't even know what that meant until they were <laughs> in yeah. church. That's, that's where they saw, you know, they had some enlightenment. Mm -hmm. I listened to this and I said, my goodness, we're under the law. Then where is everybody else if we're under the law? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can go to anybody. Okay, look, look, Tony. Let me let me ask you. See, you're 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 uh, new among us uh, to the tune of a few months. Mm -hmm. Okay, tell me, just in a simple way, what do we push in the church? I mean, there's some things you've heard a lot, but what do we really emphasize? To turn to your spirit. To what? Turn to your spirit. Turn to your spirit. Exactly. To experience Christ. Right. That's. I mean, this. That's what we do here. Would you? That's. Okay, that's one word. That's that's a um, that's uh, one answer and a very accurate answer. Okay, isn't that right? Okay, Kevin, you're also yeah. newer than that. What do we push here? When will you give? I'd say 
the enjoyment of Christ. Hey. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. This is this is what we do. We're under the law. When our whole everything we do, our whole being is enjoy Christ as the living one. Right. Right. Now I'll tell you what the real situation is. Is is there's a difference between being under the law right. Right. and being under the light. Right. And the real problem is if the church is proper, there's light there. Yes. And you're supposed to enjoy Christ to fulfill that light. But if that light is shining brightly, you, you know, if you don't experience Christ and you, your heart's not proper, you run away. Why? To escape the light? Right, exactly. Sure. Well, yeah. If, you, if that's the way it is, yeah, light is a bondage. Right. <laughs> so what do you do? Run away from the light? No. Then you, you go into darkness. No, you, the way you do it is you experience God's economy of Christ's life to fulfill God's purpose. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, some people leave the church. You know, the first thing they dump? The teachings on the kingdom. Because that means we are responsible to be those who fulfill God's purpose according to His plan. They dump it. They say, oh, that's not it. The kingdom, uh, you know... Uh, they, they like to knock the kingdom. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. I, I tell you the truth, we didn't invent the teachings on the kingdom. And we're not as strong as some other people oh, teach on the kingdom. We we really balance that with with grace. Very, I'd say, uh, a lot. Silly, silly. Okay, I hope everyone would just listen. Don't take any slander, okay? No slander. You promise. Don't take slander. Okay? Don't... If somebody's got something to say, then at least say it to our face. Say it to our face. Yeah. It's amazing what you can't say when you have to say it to somebody's face. Right. Yeah. Okay? That's fair, isn't that fair? Say it to your face and let's hear what the other person says. Don't just say so and so and so and so. Mm -hmm. You know what I heard someone said last week? Someone said, I threw somebody out of the church. I did it. I threw, I threw somebody out of the church. <laughs> Can you believe that? I threw somebody out of the church. Me. I said, Lord, that's really bad. Okay, well, let's say a person really heard that. Uh, that's not surprising. That, 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 to me, runs true to form as, as slander goes. <laughs> but why, if they, why, instead of someone telling someone else, why wouldn't they come to me and say, is that true, yes or no? All right, is that right? And ask me, tell me from your conscience. Brother, you tell me from your conscience. Did you do that? And that could apply to anything. Easy. It's easy to clear up when we're in the light. But when you slurk around in the darkness and, and say, that this is exactly what happened to Smyrna. All of these kind of things. Right. Right. Okay, I, I'll just leave, leave it there. I just want you to see the, the main weapon is slandered. Listen, a lot of forms of it. Don't take it. Please.
don't take it. Okay, lastly, boy, I knew Smyrna was going to be not. Okay, the last point is uh, number five, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Ten days. You know what that means? I call this uh, the precise timing in suffering. The precise timing. You will have it precisely, exactly 10 days, not shorter, not longer. That any time of any kind of tribulation we will go through is measured out and is under a heavenly timetable to accomplish a specific purpose and when that purpose is accomplished that suffering ends. Right? You will have suffering 10 days. We ought to be comforted that it's even measured so precisely. So, Here's how to suffer, to gain Christ, to fulfill God's purpose, to be in the principle of Smyrna so that you can be an overcomer in the kingdom age. Suffer in these six ways. By the sovereign control of God. By the power of the resurrected Christ. By the sympathy of of the suffering Christ by the richness that comes out of suffering by seeing Satan's weapon of suffering which is slander and by seeing the precise timing of suffering measured out by God if you see all that, you'll make it fine. Okay? I think this is good on the church in Smyrna. Good. Now, let's look at our watch. It's 12.38, so we have... Okay, at this point in church history... Okay, is everybody, is everybody okay? Can we go another 22 minutes? Okay, we're okay? Uh, some of you, some of you, I hope you don't leave after lunch because we'll have a shorter meeting and we'll try to really get into the, <clears throat> the heart of Pergamos and then we'll have a long afternoon break. That would be the best time to go back. But some of you have obligations, whatever, that's fine. Uh, but the church in, in Pergamos is a total change from the church in Smyrna. Okay? Pergamos means marriage, union, and it also means high fortified tower. Right. Uh, and we can get into that later, but I want you to key in on the words union and marriage because this is a church who goes from being persecuted by the world to being in union and married to and having a very involved relationship with the world. Right. Okay? 
uh, you can say that basically this occurred because Satan in his persecutions with Smyrna could not prevail. He did not win that round. Persecution did not damage the Lord's people. It purified them, it preserved them, and they even increased in number under the deadly persecutions of Satan. That was a time of glory being manifested. So he junked that one. He had to change, okay? He had to change. And so instead of attacking, he Satan put his hand out to shake hands with the world, welcome the world, appreciate or welcome the church, appreciate the church and influence the world, society, mm-hmm. mankind in general to embrace that which it had been persecuting. Right. Okay? And it was a master stroke. Right. And this time of Pergamus lasts a while. And what I would like to do before lunch is I would like to give you the background so that you can see how this change developed, okay? Is it does hinge on one person. The change hinges, okay? And once the thing was set in motion, it perpetuated itself until Pergamus uh, metamorphosized itself right into Thyatira. Okay? It was just a continual changing line and, and at one point it became solidified to the point that we could say that was definitely became Thyatira. Okay? So Pergamus is a switch from persecution to acceptance, even more than acceptance, to encouragement for you to become a Christian according to some definitions that we'll get into. Okay. Uh, basically, we can say this way, and that is, this man, Constantine, was raised up as, a, as an historical figure. Uh, his father was Constantius, who was the administrative uh, governor of one of the, prov- one of the Roman provinces. Uh, there's two things in my mind, and I can't quite reconcile them, because uh, one of them, uh, I'm almost positive that he was uh, administrating the province of Gaul, which is part of today's France. And uh, yet, the other part is that he was also uh, the pro-council or administrative head of what we call you know, Great Britain today, and they call Britain as well. Uh, I think probably it was both, because at that time part of Britain uh, included part of France just like it did in centuries after that. Okay. Anyway, for whatever that may be, Constantius actually lived in what we now know as England, and that was a Roman province. Uh, one of the very last that got to be a Roman province. And he was there, and basically he and his wife were very uh, tolerating Christians and even leaning, inclined toward uh, Christianity. And later his mother, from all accounts, even became a, a very definite confessing Christian. So he was, but he was also surrounded by paganism. And so, in that light, the time came 
in the uh, beginning of the 300s, when the last Caesar died off and suddenly there were five people lined up to scrap it out to see who would be the next Caesar. See, these intrigues went on for hundreds of years. And, and, and some, some guys who came in power were assassinated and they stayed in office all of 60 days. I mean, this was Caesar after Caesar after Caesar. And, and some of them would grab it, consolidate their power, and hold on for a longer period of time. Okay? This is all just uh, secular history even. Okay. Uh, Constantine was going to make a strong bid to be the next Roman Caesar. And so that's while he was on the eve of the battle that would determine whether or not he got that power is when he remembered some of the admonitions of his father and so forth. And anyway, he, he saw, purportedly he saw this vision in the sky where there was a cross with the words, you know, uh, by this conquer. So that became the emblem. He took that, he immediately had an emblem made on his army, a very elaborate kind of thing. It, it had uh, some crosses and it had uh, the name of Jesus Christ on it, also had his name on it. Uh, it had, some, had a purple banner going down with some uh, Latin written on it that said different things. And, uh, it was a real elaborate thing. It was guarded by 50 elite, uh, you know, uh, people that were, that was their job. And they were told that they would be uh, uh, invulnerable to death if they would guard this cross. And so, uh, anyway, he had the battle out uh, with his big rival, and uh, he won. Uh, and he was so overcome by that that he attributed that to his vision uh, basically what happened was he saw that as a sign in which to wage warfare uh, there's nothing in the accounts to say that he himself as a man repented and received Christ but he took it as an omen of power for the state so based on that, when he came into power, uh, he quickly abolished all laws, edicts, etc., that had anything to do with the uh, mistreatment of any, of any Christians. And any properties that they owned, any public or private, were restored to them as far as he could do throughout all the provinces. And generally speaking, he encouraged, he encouraged Christianity. He did not mandate it, but he encouraged it. And, of course, you've heard stories of troops riding through the rivers, and that was their baptism, you know. He would baptize all whole columns at one time just by splashing through the river and things like that. Uh, this, what I, want, what I want you to see here is a couple of things. This is the beginning of state religion, where the state and religion became one. Okay. Uh, number two, it is the seed bed. Constantine was the seed bed to what would come in Thyatira long after he died. Okay, he was the seed bed there. 
That is, uh, uh, he began a process that was to culminate later in an established set papal hierarchy. Okay? Let me let me illustrate this way. I think I can do a little better. Uh, when, when he established Christianity as the most favored religion, at that time, in, in essence, he became the head of the church, just like the Queen of England is the head of the Anglican Church. Do you understand me? Yeah. He, became, he was in all the decisions, and I mean, he virtually had the power of making these kinds of decisions, you see. In fact, in the, in the official writings during his time, way back then, yeah. is when the word Catholic first began to be used. Okay. And so he, he was the head, he, you see, he was the head of the church. But because he viewed it all these religions in a political realm, he never relinquished his role as being the high priest of the pagan gods. So he had a twofold status. He was the head of the church and the high priest of paganism. Same time. And he was never baptized out of Adam and into Christ until his death. On his deathbed. At that time, he was pretty scared and he said if if God, if a true God rescued him, he would, he would, uh, you know, begin. He would basically totally identify with the Christians. He would quit living a dual life, something like that. Mm. Anyway, it didn't work. He died, but he was baptized, and the Lord knows whether, you know, what happened there right before he died. But anyway, during his life was different. He, he, he. he uh, you could be a pagan, you could be a Christian, and you were tolerated. Mm under his strong administrative control. Okay? So what you had existing there is a peaceful coexistence between Christianity and paganism at that time. As long as long as as long as there was a strength, a strong government there that would keep these two, you know, kind of like two separate elements apart. That was one thing. So he had the ability to allow them to exist, you know, in the same government. As time went, as he died, and as time went on, the religious side of the government became stronger, and the administrative side became weaker, until the religious side started to dominate the political side, and the one heading up the church in Rome became so powerful, Rome being the center of the world at that time, and him being the center of the church at that time, based on the hierarchy that developed, or was developing, became so powerful by, by gradual degrees that the secular powers waned and the religious powers increased. Okay? To the time that you come to Thyatira at that point, the religious powers, it's no longer a mixture of, of uh, church and state, but it's a mixture of state and church. Do you understand? Whereas, first of all, religion was accepted into the state. When Thyatira came, the state had to be accepted into religion. Right. Right. Wow. 
it became more powerful than any kings on this earth. And it controlled the shots yeah. with all the kings. That's right. Call the tune. Played. That's right. Made them play their game. Okay. Mm-hmm. See, this is the seed. This is why I'm saying. <clears throat> then, when religion became the power and the secular authority waned, the two things, paganism and Christianity, used to exist side by side but separated. When the religion came over, they didn't want the bloody wars. So they, instead of letting them exist, merged them and engulfed them and took the pagan things into the Christian things. And that's why today Thyatira is the mother of all of these uh, pagan things that has been put into Right. The pure, fine flower of right. Christianity. This is the parable of Matthew 13. Yeah. The woman took leaven. That's the impure right. pagan things right. and exactly. put it into the fine flower. Mm-hmm. Let's see. That's right. Uh, we'll, we'll get into a lot of this when we get into Thyatira, but I want you to see this is the seed of it. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. So that believers were there during this time, but there were a lot of believers also there who were unbelievers in reality. There was a mixture. There was a mixture. That's, and, and we are still... This is why you see... Uh, uh, the principle has, has never changed. Therefore, you can still go into many mainline denominations today and know a lot of people there uh, you know, accept Christianity as a religion, but have not had a personal experience with Christ as a person. That's a fact. And Roman Catholicism is a religion. But they, they know very, very little. It's, a, it's, an, it's an unusual thing when a person says, in that system, they would say, all these external things are not important. The important thing is your personal inward relationship with Christ as a person. They would not, they would not have that enlightenment. That person would be a rare exception, and usually those exceptions leave. That's, that's just history. Okay. Well, this is, how, uh, this is how the things got mixed. So Pergamos under Constantine became a mixture of the world and a mixture of what? The church. They joined. They married. And it became the seedbed of what would later become Thyatira. And it became large. There weren't now just little groups of Christians having an intimate fellowship with the Lord and with one another, but it became a national, it became a national popular thing to do. You see? And that made it totally mixed, the church and the world, and secular things and religious things, and holy things with unholy things, and believers with unbelievers, until the whole thing is one big mixture. And that mixture is is an illegal marriage between the church and the world church became worldly and even the world became churchy. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. Is that all clear to all you guys? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, uh, let's see, five, five minutes. What can I do in five minutes? Very little. Okay, in five minutes I can say this. Look, look at uh, Roman numeral two. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Look at this. I know where you dwell. You know where you dwell? In the world. You dwell where Satan's throne is. Where is Satan's throne? He is the king, the authority, and the ruler of this present age. His home is the world, just like Christ's home is the church. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This is where, this is, this is his, uh, this is his place. You're living where his throne is. Look at the end of uh, verse. Uh, when I say verse, I mean Roman numeral three. Look at the end of Roman numeral three. My faithful one who was killed among you. Look at that. Where Satan what dwells? Um, Satan dwells. Among you, where Satan dwells. Okay. The Lord says, you dwell, and here it says, Satan dwells. Right. Mm. Now, do you see that this is there, there is a mutual living together between Satan and the church, so-called church? I know where you dwell, that's where Satan is. And I know where Satan dwells, that's where you are. You and him and he and you all dwell together in one entity that's called Pergamos. The, the union of the church with the world. Now, I think you got the concept. Don't you have the concept?